Thanks very much to our friends at Hired for sponsoring this episode of Does Not Compute. Any designers or developers looking for new job opportunities should definitely give Hired a try. In case you haven't heard of them, Hired basically removes all the hassle from finding a new job. Just sign up and you'll get five or more interview requests per week from over 3,000 companies that use Hired. The interview requests list salary and equity up front so you can easily figure out which companies you want to talk to more. There are all sorts of jobs in all sorts of places. The companies using Hired range from tiny startups to giant corporations, and they're looking for full-time and contract workers in 13 of the major tech hubs across Europe and North America. Once you've found your next job through Hired, they'll actually give you a $1,000 bonus as a way to say thanks for using them. Better yet, since you're a listener of Does Not Compute, Hired will double your thank you bonus to $2,000 if you sign up at Hired.com slash Does Not Compute. So that's a pretty awesome deal. You'll get a new job, $2,000, and help support the show. Go check out Hired today. So, Sean, we're, uh, we're in the same room. That's kind of weird. Hasn't happened in a while. It has never happened when we've recorded a podcast. It hasn't, actually. It's a miracle that I'm here, though. It is. And what's even more of a miracle is that we have our first guest, and he's not from Santa Cruz. He's actually from across a big, giant pond. We have John Gold. Thanks for having me, guys. I came a long way to record this half an hour podcast. We really appreciate it. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be worth it. So I've actually been looking forward to this a lot. Uh, I followed you on Twitter for a while. I think last time you were in Santa Cruz, we talked a little bit about it, but I'm always very interested in the things that you're tweeting about, especially in the React world and the functional programming world and the CSS world. Um, so yeah, I'm really I'm really stoked to talk to talk to you about that today. Yeah, for sure. I I love that stuff. I've, you know, I've been writing closure since the first startup I worked at. Actually, just at, literally across the road from where we were recording, Prismatic was about five years ago. That was my first exposure to functional programming and closure and stuff. Um, and it's great that those ideas have kind of finally found a place in the mass market. You know, we're not we're not writing closure day to day, but a ton of the ideas from that are around. You know, functional programming, immutability, all that stuff. So we were actually talking a little bit about the idea of what I've heard you call in the past functional CSS. And now you're not calling it that anymore. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I feel like as a community, we haven't necessarily come up with the perfect word to describe what I was calling functional CSS yet. It's not so much of a branding thing. It's more like, I feel like it's pretty important to be precise with the words that we use. You know, the English language is rich and expressive and there's lots of interesting um, routes that we can take with with the frameworks that we use. Um, so, you know, if you're not familiar with this kind of stuff, if you don't follow me on Twitter, which, you know, I wouldn't, um, <laughs> we're talking, you know, we're talking about what people call atomic CSS or functional CSS or utility class CSS. Um, you might have seen it in libraries such as Base CSS or Tachyons by Brent Jackson and Adam Morse, respectively. Um, you might have seen Cole Peters' blog post about how he implemented it at Trial Reach, or there's another great blog post um, by by BuzzFeed about how they again adopted a similar approach. But the idea is, um, 
that we take ideas from functional programming, immutability, small composable classes and such like, and apply them, apply them to CSS. I really like what you just said a minute ago about thinking about what you should call a thing, because that that's something that we actually talked about this in last week's episode, where language works and it allows us to think because we have specific words for things. We're able to define things based on how we can say them or how we can write them, depending on what the language is. And I think it's it's really cool that you're focusing so much on what it should actually be called, because that will affect how it grows and develops. Well, it is what it is. Like, it's not a branding thing. It's not like it's not like a stupid acronym, like so many things in programming. Um, I feel like the, in the React community, is especially recently, like I've noticed people getting flack for using words like isomorphism and immutability, um, referential transparency, like whatever the words are. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's kind of important to use, you know, to just use the right words for for what for what you're talking about. Um, as long as we do it in kind of a compassionate way and not in a way that's just kind of academic or, you know, we don't want to be exclusionary about things. But let's just let's figure out what we're doing and uh, figure out why it's great and use the appropriate words to talk about it. That said, it shouldn't get in the way of like actually writing code, actually, actually using the stuff. So a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the concept of OOCS, OOCSS or object-oriented CSS, uh, you know, where you would have some DOM elements and you have a selector and you target that group of elements via that selector and you style it that way. How would you describe the main difference between something like OOCSS, like Smacks or something like that, versus utility class CSS or atomic CSS or what have you? So I think it's like the complete opposite. If you take everything that we did for what, five years or so with OSCSS and just do the opposite thing. Um, before we get into that, I think it's important to like kind of go back a little bit before that and, you know, remember where we came from. Um, none of this movement is an indictment against OSCSS, I think, or, or BEM or Smacks, or, or any of those things. Like, those were fantastic tools at the time. If we think about, you know, where CSS came from, like, I started writing CSS probably about 15 years ago. But seriously, like, when I started doing it, you know, as a designer and, and for clients and stuff, it was probably, it's what, 2016 now, so probably about 2006, 2008. And I think that was, you know, right in the middle of the, what I would call like the semantic web movement. And maybe this was my misinterpretation of it, but, you know, like just being an inexperienced developer. But how I took that was that you shouldn't use divs at all. You should always use semantic elements, semantic class names. You should use classes as little as possible. I'm still not sure whether this is me misinterpreting the dogma of the time or whether this was actually how people intended it to be like but a lot of the code bases that i wrote and a lot of the code bases that i inherited you'd end up with like crazy crazy nested selector chains you'd end up with things like ulia colon first with i i don't know like crazy crazy chains of of um element based selectors crazy um like weird hacks with things like data attributes like all of this stuff just to avoid doing what we should have done in the first place which is just like giving appropriate classes to things and you know that that was a mess and rightfully so like the cha the chains of selectors we were writing were completely unmaintainable 
And so OSCSS like sprung out, I think it was probably about 2010, 2011, something like that. That was at least when I was first became aware of it. And, you know, that more designers had been diving into code and we took some ideas from Java and Objective-C, which is the object-oriented methodology. And that was great, you know, like let's, as designers, as graphic designers, we can we consider design as, you know, systems, as components, as frameworks, as objects. And so OICSS seemed like a pretty natural way to manage that. And that was great for a while. In favor of OICSS, I would just like to say I, and I know many other people, have made pretty awesome stuff using OOCSS. I think it, it is a at least semi-valid approach. It has definite pros, and especially compared to the CSS we were writing in the very, very early days, in the, in the early 2000s, it is significantly better. It is a major step forward, but kind of the idea behind using utility classes and all these other things is that you say, okay, now instead of writing any form of object in C- into CSS, instead of putting any sort of logic in there, we're just going to make this entirely about the HTML. We're going to make this about the markup, and we're going to make it about the JavaScript that powers that markup, and we're going to remove all of the difficulties of styling from that language that wasn't really designed for it in the first place. Right, for sure. So CSS kind of does its job. CSS like lets you style anything in the document. It's just not particularly good at um, as, as a developer workflow. You know, you look at you look at why that is. You look you can, you can build anything with CSS. It's just a continuously frustrating process for me. And I say this as someone who write CSS pretty much every day I have done for 10 years. You know, it's probably out of all the programming languages that I do, it's probably the thing I'm the most familiar with. And it's a mess because it wasn't intended to see what we're doing for now. And I think we can kind of boil that down to the first the first word there, really, cascading. Like we have these variables, we have properties that you can't rely on to do what you want them to do. You can never be sure exactly what something's going to do in CSS. And OICSS doesn't really do anything to to solve that, you know. Um, you can encapsulate something as much as you want in OICSS, but as, as long as you have as long as you have the cascade, there's no guarantee that you'll get the output you want. And so, I think another thing that happened over the past five years is that designers and front end developers have started dipping in, like pulling ideas out of functional programming languages. I'm pretty fond of Clojure and we've also got a lot of people who like using Haskell and things like Elm. We don't have to use those day-to-day, absolutely not, but there are some really interesting kind of mathematical almost ideas that we can bring into CSS. For me, the main thing is this idea of immutability, the idea that if you if you declare a value, it's not going to be something else somewhere down the line. It's always going to be the thing that you say it's going to be. With CSS, I could say the color's blue here, but someone else... 500 you know 500 lines down might decide it's red and we can't be sure of that so i feel like pulling some of these ideas in into css and just getting it kind of more more manageable is kind of a good thing i think the point that you made about css becoming unmaintainable the more something gets built on right the more that it's updated the more features that are added the more that time goes on CSS, more than any other language that I write anyway, becomes more unmaintainable, or it certainly can be, you know. Um, So 
in my case, when I'm building small marketing sites or something like that, it's not really an issue. The cascade is not a problem for me because I'm the only one working on it, right? I know what I've written and it's not a large number of CSS styles. But when I'm working on something like a web app where there are multiple developers maybe writing CSS, the, the cascade can become an issue because the other developer would have to be aware of what I'm writing, you know, and with CSS, it's not going to say, hey, you're overwriting something somewhere. It's just going to do it, right? Because it cascades. Uh, it's almost it's almost like a different concept. So I spend a lot of time writing Ruby and I spend a lot of time writing JavaScript and debugging JavaScript and Ruby is vastly different. It's a whole different skill set than debugging something like CSS. Well, debugging CSS is still guessing as much as as much as you think you might know it. It's still like you click buttons in web inspects, you try things out, you add important on. Everyone does this. People might not admit they do, but I I don't think anyone can write CSS even in 2016 and be guaranteed that they'll get out of it what they want. Debugging CSS to me feels a lot like as Buzz Lightyear would put it, falling with style. Because <laughs> you might think you know what you're doing, but there's actually no logic behind it. It's just you guessing kind of well. And that that's the best case scenario. And I, I think that, that all of this really comes back to being a symptom of what we actually talked about earlier tonight, John, is that CSS was kind of designed for a different age. Web pages and websites, they they were exposing different things at the time when CSS became something that people could use. And I think HTML and JavaScript, they're they're both equally as old, actually older in a lot of ways than CSS. But they, I think, were kind of an anomaly. Both of them grew much better and, and grew with the development process a lot better than CSS did. Well, there, it's not like CSS hasn't evolved. You know, we've got CSS3, we've got, you know, we've got the future of CSS coming out. Um, you can do border radiuses now, like that's great. And we've got like a wealth of preprocessors, like less and SAS were very exciting. Like I, I can't remember writing CSS without build tools now, which is great. On the other hand, like they don't really address the issues there. I think like if anything, less and SAS made people write worse CSS rather than better CSS. You could, you have to be very careful with this stuff. I mean, I love SAS. I use it all the time. Anytime I can, I will put SAS into a project and I will and I will absolutely prefer it over standard CSS. But at the same time, I've experienced so many code bases that just abuse every single feature of it. They make it so much more difficult to work with and so much more difficult to maintain because there was no understanding of why those features were important and what they actually should be used for. Yeah, like maybe use like one level of nesting, maybe if you really, really, really have to. Like maybe, for example, you're using an external library, you can't control what class is there. You know, you might, you might need to target something, fine. But I've I've written, I've been responsible for it. I'm going to put my hands up and admit it, um, you know, years ago. And I've seen code bases with you know, five levels of nesting or, you know, more. Like there are some, you can do some really crazy things with SAS. That's not necessarily a SaaS problem, it's an education problem. Um, but I think the the general cons- the general feeling is that you you know you're doing object oriented CSS in combination with something like SaaS and less just gives people enough rope to hang themselves. And I think really this is what is really nice about atomic CSS or whatever we end up calling it. This idea that you can enforce pretty strict style guides. Um, you you know you come up beforehand 
with your idea of what the font sizes should be. You come up beforehand with your idea of what the margins should be and the padding should be. And you get back a bunch of primitives. You get back a bunch of Lego blocks. You know, you get the small Lego block and the medium Lego block and the long Lego block. And then it's up to you to just throw them in into your code base where, wherever you want them. And the idea with this, is, it's all about safety, really. It's about you're not giving people the rope to hang themselves with. You're giving them toys which they can build anything with. So with, so with Atomic CSS, you know, you've got this, incre- if you think of it as a design tool, you've got this incredible way of making sure that no one messes up your design system. If people are changing the margins to be arbitrary values or the type size to be arbitrary values that aren't on, you know, that aren't on your baseline grid, well, that's clearly wrong. You can clearly see that that's wrong. The other thing that really springs to mind to me, you know, right now at 10 p.m. is code complexity. We're always going to be doing component-based design. Getting away from component-driven CSS isn't an indictment of component-based design. We're going to be doing that, at least for as long as I can think of at this point. So let's say I come to you and say, you know, Paul, create me a new component. So you go and you create the markup for that. You're going to do that anyway. You're going to do that whether we're doing atomic CSS or object-oriented CSS. The other thing you're going to do if you're doing object-oriented CSS is create the style sheets, you know, you're going to create classes for different states, for different parts of the elements. And you're going to do this repetitively. You know, you look through your code base and you've probably written the same CSS time and time again. Just today I was using an open source project with, you know, just some inherited CSS. And it's like every single class was declaring the same shit over and over and over again. So the nice thing about Atomic CSS is that whilst, yes, you're writing new markup for every component, that's fine. It's all composable. It's all React components or what, you know, whatever, what have you these days. Um, but, you know, whatever it is, um, you're, you're writing and encapsulating components, that's fine. But with Atomic CSS, you're not writing any more CSS. The CSS is done. I remember chatting to Adam Morse a couple of days ago. I haven't seen I hadn't seen him for a couple of days or a couple a couple of months. And I was like, dude, can't wait to hang out with you and write some CSS together. And he was like, What do you mean? We've written all the CSS. We just have to use it now. And I think that's really, really powerful with Atomic CSS, with whatever library you write, you know, there's no more CSS to write. There might be sprinklings here and there, you know, for edge cases and stuff. But by and large, it, it's done. You have you know, you've you're the Lego factory, you've created all of these building blocks. Now you just have to kind of put them together and build great things with them. And I think that's really, really powerful. Well, that's kind of what I see him doing now with Tachyons, right? So I've been watching Tachyons since he started it, or at least since I, you know, I found out about it a few months ago. And it went from him, you know, maybe renaming some classes here and there. Now he's not really writing any more classes. He's not writing any more CSS. He's writing many more examples, right? So he's taking those Lego blocks that he built, like you said, and he's showing you how you might use those Lego blocks. And I I kind of really like that idea. I think I saw somebody say that on Twitter, maybe it was you or Adam, but he said that, you know, we've already written all the CSS. Maybe somebody was quoting him. But I'd never really thought about it that way. And I was like, wow, you know, if you have all these classes already defined, they're already there, you just have to use them now. Um, but I think my favorite thing about Tachyons right now is that he has the size on every component he might build or every example. He's like, this is X bytes. You know, this is this is all there is for this component. This is all that's required. I've never met someone so obsessed with performance, but in an incredibly achievable, down-to-earth way. It's really, really inspiring. Sure. 
I can I can definitely see that, you know, just by observing. Uh, I think that says a lot about somebody when you can when you can kind of infer that, you know, without having to actually talk to them or meet them in person. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, performance has never been what really really gets me off. Like I I I do it, but there are always people who care about it more than me. But um, like since meeting Adam, like he's the person who seems to just be presenting it in an incredibly accessible way that we can all kind of get behind. And, you know, that's the thing with Atomic CSS, whatever you're using, whether you're doing something home-rolled or using Base or using Tachyons or using any of the other libraries, it's always going to be incredibly performant. You can have tiny style sheets. You might be using a lot of classes, but that's fast. The browser's good at that, you know. Sure. Like, it's going to be incredibly performant. I've used base CSS on a couple of projects uh, in the last few months. And most recently, I've built out a collection of SAS functions that build out my selectors for me. Um, so that way I can change ratios and I can change, you know, just mathematically, I can generate my sizing classes and stuff. Um, it's It's been interesting, you know. I, I won't say that I am completely like this is how I'm going to write CSS from now on because I find myself in situations where I really wish that I hadn't used them and then I find myself in situations where I'm like this is really great but the situations where I feel like I've walked myself into a corner they usually tends to be with a more complicated design or design that has many different states but for the most part you know I, I feel like it has made me faster in a lot of ways we haven't solved every aspect of it yet. One of the things that was difficult for a long time was doing media queries. Like Base CSS had some support for that. Um, but I think Tachyons and the methods like that Cole Peters wrote to, wrote about in his blog post, which I guess we'll, we'll put all the stuff in the show notes. Um, you know, like media queries are kind of solved now. Um, hover states and that kind of thing are kind of solved now. It depends how you're writing your components. Like I presume this stuff is more difficult if you're not using some kind of front-end component library. Like if you're not using React or Vue or something, this is probably pretty difficult to implement. No, it's funny that you bring that up. The majority of the situations where I've been, where I thought to myself, this kind of sucks, was pre-component library like Vue or React or something like that. It depends what you're doing. If I'm doing a simple marketing page, like a landing page or whatever, then I might just I might just write like plain HTML with no preprocessor, like crazy, right? <laughs> I, um, I was doing that last night when you came over. We were like, hanging out, like looking at our laptops, writing some hypertext markup language. <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, so so I might do that. Like for small things, I might I might do that, and that's fine. For anything involving interaction or components or anything like that, like I can't. I just can't do it without React anymore. This actually brings up a tangent, which I haven't spoken about on a podcast yet. So let's let's just chat about it. So I think one of the things that um, that really strikes me about about React or about you know any um, any of this generation of JavaScript libraries that makes them really um, just feel like natural and ergonomic for designers and front end developers is this concept of representing UI as a function of the data. Like you think of a mathematical function, you know, something that takes in an input and returns you an output predictably. This is the, this is to use another buzzword, to use more jargon. This is um, what idempotent means. It means a function that gives you the same output for the same input. It might sound like some boring mathy stuff, which I thought it was for ages. 
but it's actually pretty powerful. It means that you can rely on your user interface to look exactly how you describe it every single time. My buddy Guillermo Rausch um, wrote a great post called Pure UI um, about this last year, which I think is great if people haven't haven't read that. Um, but when you tie these things together, you know, this is why, okay, this is why React makes more sense than using Angular or Backbone or Ember. It's not, a, it's not a flavor of the week thing. It's like, oh, this is just a different mental model. This kind of UI as a function of data thing makes a lot of sense. And then when you're doing things like that, you're like, well, if, if I have these nice component libraries, if I have these nice encapsulated components, if you're using things, if you're keeping your React symbol, if you're using like pure, like functional components, like the stateless stuff, it's so, so simple. And it works really, really nicely with Atomic CSS. Like I, they just go hand in hand so well. The way that I was writing web apps three, four years ago, like is plain Rails apps, maybe sprinkling on some jQuery here or there to do like UI manipulation. I can't see that working the same way. I can't, I can't see it being so nice. I also don't want to be elitist. Like I've had people being like, oh, we don't have the luxury of using the tools that you use. And I think that's fine. Like if if this stuff isn't a fit for where your your organization is technologically, like that's cool. Um, that's cool as well. Like don't feel like you have to use everything that we talk about. It's just pretty fun. I think that actually brings up a really interesting point. About, I don't know, six months or so ago, I went to Sean and I said, Man, uh, can you can you believe these guys? Can you believe these uh, this murmurs guy and this John Gold guy? And they're always talking about the CSS, and I, I think that seems like a really not great idea. And we should we should do a podcast and talk about that, like talk talk about things in development. Was well, it is the opposite of how we've been writing CSS? It's also pretty similar to how we wrote or styled pages, like fifteen. 16 17 years ago before css it's like it's almost come full circle except this time we don't have any of the gotchas that we had back then right and that that was how i was looking at it at the time i I was like i really can't get behind us looking at something the same way that we looked at it like you said 16 17 years ago when we or we already had this battle we already had this battle and and the correct way we didn't well we didn't win did we we thought we won and and i had thought i that at the time I thought that we had one. I thought this was a done and dusted discussion. We were set. But as it turns out, we weren't. And I think what's what's really interesting to me about that isn't so much CSS, because who cares? CSS will come and go, trends will rise and fall. And now, at this point in time, I'm much more on the side of, of the stuff you're talking about, uh, of the atomic CSS. But I think what's what's a much more interesting point there is the fact that programmers should always be open to change. Because like I said, six months ago, I was completely on the other side of the fence with this. And now we're sitting in a room chatting about it and I'm nodding my head to everything you said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's just a lot of going through the history bin and picking out ideas that maybe hadn't had that time, you know, went, that were maybe ahead of their time. Lisp is over 50 years old and there are new ideas to pick out of it every single day. Lisp might have been the best language for 1957, but it's pretty exciting to think about it now. There was a tweet going around, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it's something like the, 
either the rendering method of React or something about Redux um, is very, very similar to like Win 16, you know, to how things are rendered in what, Windows 3.1, I guess it would have been, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. We're like, oh, I thought we were like doing something crazy and futuristic. Well, maybe not. Maybe we're just taking the correct ideas from the past and applying them now. It's not like OICSS was any more recent, you know, object-oriented programming. Well, go and read The Brief History of Small Talk by Alan Kay. That's also pretty old. Early 1980s, OOP uh, was exploding. Right, right. That, like, but 80s, though, was when it really took off. And then nobody talked about it all that much. People kept using it, but it wasn't as massive. And then in the mid-late 2000s, people were like, oh, we should be doing more OOP. All of a sudden, out of nowhere. Somewhere, front-end developers got a hold of Eclipse and started doing some Java. <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's how it happened. <laughs> that's probably exactly how it happened. I just think that's such an important concept for developers to keep in mind, is that even if you have a concept that you really love, a concept that you're super passionate about, make sure that you're not excluding other things. Because that's how the industry grows, really, is by people trying new stuff. I never want to be that guy who's like, get off my lawn. You know, I've learned everything that there is to know or everything that I deem to be correct. Otherwise, we'd still be writing COBOL or Delphi or I don't know what the fuck we'd be writing. When CSS modules came out, I think it was probably it's probably about a year old or so as, as a concept, like a mainstream concept. I've still had to be like, oh, this sounds good, but I th- I'm pretty sure that Atomic CSS is better, so I'm not going to read about it. And then I was like, wait a second, this is exactly the kind of shit that I hate, you know? I hate the idea that I'd be so set in my own conviction that I wouldn't explore new ideas. It turns out, actually, that CSS modules and Atomic CSS can play together really, really nicely. Like, if you do want to encapsulate things, if you do want to have a different method of um, composing composing styles you can you can use the two together i it's not something that i have done because i haven't found it to be a problem just yet but we don't know the answers no one knows the answers adam might know the answers <laughs> um adam probably does know the answers but i think as an industry we're just like kind of just kind of fumbling around in the dark just trying to see you know just trying to like peer to the next you know just around the next corner and see what we can see what we can find but um it's not it's not like it's finished so that, that actually pairs up really well with something a, a good friend of mine and I were talking about the other day. He, he's a musician. And he was like, man, I've been at this for so long. And every time I make something new, I still feel like it's complete garbage. I feel like it's the worst thing. And like, Welcome what, to my design process. <laughs> exactly. That's what I said to him. I was like, well, yeah, if you, if you were happy with the stuff you were making as someone who is a creative person – then that means you've plateaued and you should try. If you ever feel like that, you should try to get back to that point where you're not satisfied with what you're making, because that's the only way you're ever going to grow and become better at what you're doing. And I I think that really applies to design, to development, to music, to pretty much any creative endeavor. I think for the first time in my career, I've started to finally, the past couple of projects I've worked on, I've been like, oh, this actually isn't the worst thing I've ever seen. It might be the second worst thing I've ever seen, just on the day that I ship it. The, you know, the day after, I'm like, this is the fucking worst. Um, but, you know, it's quite nice at least to be like, you know, just to have a glimmer of like, hey, that's like not horrific. Oh, yeah, definitely. Always give yourself that little bit of time to celebrate. Like four hours. 
maybe maybe two, maybe two, maybe two hours, and then the self-loathing continues. But I mean, but it's but time I mean, to start but, fixing bugs again. But that's the creative process. Like anyone who doesn't have that, I mean, it's kind of done in Kruger. You know, you've just you have like as a creative, like you have to be unsatisfied with your stuff because it drives you forward. Well, it's part of what keeps you motivated. You know, if you were if you made something and you're like, this is this is awesome. You know, what would motivate you to continue trying to learn or tr- trying to get better? Right. You know. Well, I mean, question to you guys, like, how good do you want to be? Question to listeners, I guess. You can kind of shout into your podcast. Hit, hit headphone, up on Twitter. I mean, like, just like walk down the street, listen to this. Um, how good do you want to be? Do you want to be like, okay? Do you want to be pretty good? I don't have a goal for how good I want to be. I just know that I never want to stop improving. Like, if, if I mm-hmm. ever sit back and say, oh, I'm happy with that for more than a couple hours, there's something wrong. Right. Because I, I just always, I always want the next thing I make to be a little bit better, at least in some way, than the last thing I made. Right. So there's absolute, you know, there's kind of absolute goals and there's relative goals. An absolute goal might be, you know, having a God complex like Kanye West and being like, I want to be the fucking best. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but that's, you know, it's an absolute fixed point of achievement. You know, saying I want to be NFL good. There's also just relative good saying, I always, always, always want to go to bed smarter and better than when I woke up. What I think is awesome is that you can, well, I've popped into many a Slack and just talked about this sort of thing. And almost everyone gives the same answer. You know, I want to be better. I want to grow. I want to learn. I think that's really awesome. You know, I think that says a lot about what we get to do. You know, the industry that we work in, to me, it's really encouraging. You know, if I, if I had a job and I were asking other people that had the same job, what do you, you know, what do you want to get better at? And they responded with, oh, I don't care. That wouldn't really motivate me to get any better, would it? So I love this industry. Yeah. I love the people in it. And I love the fact that it's still so young that we haven't finished building it, you know? Yeah. It's invention every single day. Like the, whether it's CSS, whether it's design best practices, like whatever it is, we don't know what the answers are. We get to invent it every day. Well, how small of a project is too small to add that into your mix to add type safety yeah yeah yeah. like typescript pure script whatever any whatever script you want to add in zero like you could i think the smaller the project the better because it'll stop you from getting scared away from it so so for context um i loved writing objective c because of the type safety and it it just felt so natural like when when you got it, it was a bit of pain at first and then you're like oh this is just so much easier when my environment, I'm not going to say IDE, um, is telling me that something's wrong. Like, this is great. Why do we not do this? Um, in JavaScript, I've only used Flow um, just because I think it seems more supported by like the React ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Flow, TypeScript, whatever, same thing. Um, I think the nice thing about both of them is you can kind of sprinkle them in. You don't have to refactor huge projects, but it's just an easier buy-in if you do it on all your small side projects to start with. I like them. It's a bit of a learning curve. Um, it's a bit of like wrapping your head around thinking about like what you're actually returning from your functions, but that I just can't see any downside re- since I've got addicted to it. I feel like it requires more thought up front. It requires you to plan things out more as you're building instead of just kind of tossing code in, I feel like. To an extent, but I mean, if you're writing small composable functions, then you can delete them, you can change them, whatever, it's fine. Um, and it's kind of nice if you're considering data flow through your app, like you're almost prototyping with types, you're thinking about like, oh, you know, how are these types changing? Right. 
there was that quote from, I can't even remember who said it, but it's better to have a hundred functions that operate on one type than a hundred types with one function each or something like that, which is pretty true. Like you, you kind of get pretty sensitive to the way that data is changing all through your app. Um, as of right now, I can't see any downside to it, but I'm pretty new to using things like flow. So my opinion on that might change. Sure. I think the, the thing that does mess me up with it is that it's, I use Vim and it's not, um, it doesn't feel as integrated as, you know, as type checking in Xcode or app code or anything like that. I think that's actually one of the biggest things for, for type safe languages is that you're going to have a much better time if you are using an editor that is designed to work with that language. So, for example, if you're working in Objective-C or Swift, Xcode is going to make your life so much better. If you're using C-sharp, then Visual Studio is going to make your life so much easier. Have you ever tried writing Objective-C in Vim? I have tried writing Objective-C in other text editors, not specifically in Vim. Yeah. It's a nightmare. As much as I love Vim, like maybe don't do that. (laughs) That said, I feel like if there's any text editor designed for JavaScript, designed for my ethos as a designer, as an engineer, or someone who like looks at systems, then it's probably Vim. So for the stuff I'm doing now, like I want it to work in Vim. I wouldn't use any of the big commercial JavaScript IDEs to do the stuff. It takes the fun out of it. Vim is nice. It's like a, it's a very personal tool. My great great grandfather, when he was like coming over from Russia, he was like a carpenter, and he had this like hammer and like all his tools and stuff that had been like passed down through the generations. But you saw how they were pretty attuned to his way of working. You know, they were like custom and they were all like molded to his hands or whatever. And that's kind of how I see Vim. It's so malleable, Vim or Emacs or whatever. It's like a small, well-rounded tool. Are you are you planning on passing down your your VimRC to your children? It's in my dot files at some GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's an article I read when I was trying to or when I was first learning Vim, and that's what the author jokes about is anything. I mean, beyond anything, he's going to pass down to his children his VimRC file. He's gonna, it's his legacy. It's such a weird connection. I don't know about you guys. I can speak some foreign languages but there's always like a translation gap so if i'm in berlin and i'm speaking german i can just about get away with it but i'm not thinking in german i'm thinking in english and then in my head being like oh what's the verb for that or you know what's the super long like 40 character word for that that's how i speak german with vim the when i was learning about five years ago there was this post that i found talking about vim in terms of verbs and adjectives and modifiers and nouns which I guess we'll link to that as well. And when you get that, it's like your fingers are talking to your keyboard or talking to your editor. It's like a direct connection, like from your brain to your text editor. And that's something you don't get with anything else. So it's like this weird, like almost spiritual connection. I can't believe I just said that, but it's like, it, it really is. Like it, it really feels like, like this direct connection, like between you and the code you're writing. And like, that's like, that's really powerful. It's like, hey, I can code and I can speak English, but I can I can also like I can type in Vim at a much higher level of fluency than any of the foreign languages that I spent years in school trying to learn. Like that, I think that's like yeah. something that could be I don't know, not passed down because it's not particularly interesting. But uh, well, you I mean you have a more personal connection to it because you decide what this thing is. You almost build it from the ground up, right? 
I think where my downfall of Vim was, and I, I still, even on my laptop right now, even though I use Sublime 98% of the time, I still have my fully configured Vim setup installed. Um, I think where I went wrong was I was also learning many things about Rails and learning many things about JavaScript and writing JavaScript applications. And I was like, this is a great time to learn Vim. Like similar, similarly to when I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was like, this is a great time to try out RubyMine when I have deadlines coming up. Um, and so I was never able to dedicate all of my mental energy into actually learning something efficiently. It was spread too thin, so to speak. I had the exact same thing. Like I picked up Vim at the first startup that I worked at that used Ruby. So we'd all like hang out and we'd be learning. I'd I'd be kind of picking up how to how to write Rails. But at the same time, I was also futzing around with um, with different Vim configs with different boilerplates and stuff. And it was one of those things that is very easy to go too complex to start with. The best thing you can do is start really, really small. And, you know, if you build that up, to, you can build that up to be however you want it to be. I have friends who use Vim and have incredibly minimal configs. Mine isn't quite like an IDE, but I do have, I have quite a lot of plugins. I have a lot of customizability in there but that's fine you know to each their own it's it's your own thing i feel like it probably kind of wouldn't be does not compute if we forgot to mention that if you're happy with your tool chain if you're happy with what you're doing you should probably keep doing that if you feel like you might need a new editor if you're feeling like oh maybe it's time for me to try something else maybe i want to dig deeper then absolutely give him a shot see if it's for you try give it out a shot. but if you are using something already and you're really happy with that tool and you're not worried about it day to day, don't listen to us talk about it and say, okay, I need to change my workflow because some people on a podcast said that. Like that, that's a really not great reason. I think, you know, that goes back to what we were saying about CSS earlier or React or Vue or whatever, whatever you want to do. Like if you're happy with the thing you're doing and you have deadlines and you have people paying you money and you have a landlord asking for your rent. I would do those things that, you know, let you get money to pay rent first and foremost, if you have time in the evenings or whatever it is to 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 play with new toys, great. The thing I like about Vim is the macros, you know, the, that customizability, the fact that you're like, oh, I just typed this five times. Is there a way that I could not type this five times in the future? You know, to me, that's like the core of programming, finding things you're too lazy to do again and figuring out a better way to do that. That's Vim to me. It, what's funny is I, I was using uh, macros with Sublime like two days ago, and they almost did what I wanted. Oh, they, they were so close, but they just weren't there. Exactly. I, so so I have Atom and Sublime set up on my Mac and in my dot files and stuff like that. I You know, ready to go with the, with the Vim config, just in case. But <laughs> yeah. it's... But it, but it's just never quite right. It never feels exactly like that. It's, it's like when you're cycling and every so often like you miss a tooth on the gear or something. Like, what was that? It's like the one thing I actually needed it to do, it did not do. It did yeah. everything else, just the one thing. Throws it off. Use Vim. Use Vue. Thanks again to Hired for their support of Does Not Compute. Engineers and designers who are looking for new jobs definitely need to take a look at Hired. They've totally simplified the process of finding a new job, and will even give you a $1,000 thank you bonus when you find your next job through them. Hired works with over 3,000 companies located all over North America and Europe. 
So no matter what position you're looking for, they've almost certainly got a great fit for you. If you sign up for Hired by going to Hired.com slash DoesNotCompute, they'll double your thank you bonus to $2,000 instead. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. The format was a bit different. This was our first episode Sean and I have ever recorded in person, and the first with a guest as well. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on today's episode and on the show in general, so make sure to stop by the Does Not Compute channel in the Spec Slack. If you haven't joined yet, it's super easy. Head over to spec.fm slash slack, and you can sign up in just a few minutes. Was that like a fart or a chair? <laughs> <laughs> <It's> a chair. <sighs>